Episode 59. Hello, welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. Hamlet has just completed his rather sad confession to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that he has lost all his mirth, and that despite humanity being such a glorious creation, a wonder, mankind delights not him. Shakespeare has such a lovely way of allowing for reactions to things. After this deep metaphysical paragraph from Hamlet, as he hovers between messing with the likely lads and sincere metaphysical despair almost, the playwright has the other two characters smirk. They can't quite handle such emotion from Hamlet, and it makes them uncomfortable. As soon as he says, man delights not me, they make it awkward. And Hamlet responds, No, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. I'm sure there have been countless eager college essays written about how this line might be used to prove that Hamlet is gay, or asexual. While there are certainly plenty of male characters in Shakespeare who do have feelings for other men, I don't think Hamlet is one of them. What happens here is that the awkward reaction of the other fellows drags the thought from an abstract idea that man, or humanity, or mankind, despite it being the wonder previously described, in no way inspires or delights Hamlet in his gloom. And the two dolts smirking at this forces Hamlet back into the present, wherein he points out that, no, it's not that he's getting any pleasure from any woman at the moment either. If they were genuine friends, perhaps at this moment Hamlet might tell them, and us, his side of the events with Ophelia. But Shakespeare keeps this train on his tracks, and so instead of saying, really, Hamlet, how's your love life? Rosencrantz finds something else to deny, and says, my lord, there was no such stuff in my thoughts. And indeed, Hamlet doesn't let him get away with this either, and asks for more detail. Why did you laugh then when I said man delights not me? And in fact, we have a whole new plot point as a result. Rosencrantz's reason is nothing we can have expected. To think, my lord, if you delight not in man, what Lenten entertainment the players shall receive from you. We coated them on the way, and hither are they coming to offer you service. If you'd never seen Hamlet, or you were an audience member familiar with the older play with the Wailing Ghost, or even the Danish myth, there's really nothing that would necessarily have prepared you for Shakespeare having a group of travelling players show up in the Danish court. We've already had about 200 lines of text in this scene, and there have been a great many small nods to theatres, to performance, and even to performance space. They've all been leading up to the fact that these travelling players are due to show up in Elsinore. Rosencrantz is smirking, he says, at the irony. If Hamlet delights not in man and all his foibles, then the players that he and Guildenstern passed, or coated, on the way to Elsinore, then the players will receive a fairly modest welcome. This Lenten entertainment, he refers to, is the period of fasting that leads up to Easter. The theatres were entirely closed during Lent in Elizabethan England, so it's a nod to they're not doing very well at Hamlet's court if he's in this kind of a mood. Hamlet's response is more enthusiastic than that. He lists the various kinds of performers that spring to mind. He that plays the king shall be welcome. His majesty shall have tribute of me. The adventurous knight shall use his foil and target. The lover shall not sigh gratis. 
The humorous man shall end his part in peace. The clown shall make those laugh whose lungs are tickled at the seer. And the lady shall say her mind freely, or the blank verse shall hold for it. There are plenty of loaded images here. He that plays the king in the acting troupe shall be welcome, whatever about the man playing the king for real. Hamlet will applaud the professional actor, at least. The adventurous knight shall use his sword and his shield. The lover shall not sigh for nothing. Both of these are fairly stock characters, but could also be Hamlet himself if he gets moving. Perhaps Hamlet will take up his sword against his sea of troubles, and perhaps in the end his loving sighs won't have been in vain. But before we get carried away, his list continues. The humorous man shall end his part in peace. Men that were subject to the humours, the various bodily fluids that were thought to govern a man's character, feature in a lot of plays from this period. Ben Jonson's Every Man in His Humour is a prime example. The humours could also be a reference to Hamlet, since we discussed his melancholy humour earlier in the play. Hamlet is actively working out the various possibilities of performance here, and of course we can refer them to his own experience. Perhaps Hamlet could be a fighter with a sword, or a lover with a happy ending, or a humorous man who ends his part in peace. All of these possibilities are tantalising, and as with all good Shakespearean drama, anything dramatic is undercut with a clown, the next character on Hamlet's list of players. The clown shall make those laugh whose lungs are tickled at the seer. This is a particularly obscure image that has troubled several editors over the years, and a great many of them choose to leave it out of their editions. However, credit must go to a Dr Brinsley Nicholson, who wrote this explanation in 1871. The seer of a gun lock is the bar or balance lever interposed between the trigger on the one side and the tumbler and other mechanism on the other, and is so called from its acting the part of a seer or a talon in gripping that mechanism and preventing its action. When the trigger is made to act on one end of it, the other end releases the tumbler. The main spring acts, and a hammer, flint, or match falls. Hence, Lombard, writing in 1596, has quoted, that his ready charged and bent will fly off by and by, if a man do but touch the seer. Now, if the lock be so made of purpose, or be worn, or be faulty in construction, this seer, or grip, may be so tickle or ticklish in its adjustment, that a slight touch or even jar may displace it, and then, of course, the gun goes off. Hence, our tickle of the seer, equivalent to or something like a hair trigger, applied metaphorically, means that which can be started into action at a mere touch, or on the slightest provocation at all. The more you know, eh? Hamlet is saying that the clown will get laughs from those who are easily entertained. And the lady shall say her mind freely, or the blank verse shall halt for it. What Hamlet is saying here is that whoever is playing the lady in the troupe shall be allowed to speak all of her lines without interruption, so that the blank verse isn't compromised. He's talking about the reception, after all, that these players will have in the palace rather than in one of the theatres. Perhaps he's gently hinting that whatever boy player has the role of the queen won't be subject to any catcalls from an audience, and will be able to say his whole part without interruption. Now Hamlet wonders who these players might be. He says, surprise, surprise, what players are they? Rosencrantz, who seems to have all of the lines in this current section of the play, replies, 
even those you were wont to take delight in, the tragedians of the city. He assures Hamlet that in fact it's a company he has enjoyed in the past. Hamlet is surprised to hear that they're having to tour. How chances it they travel? Their residence, both in reputation and profit, was better both ways. Surely, Hamlet thinks, the theatre troupe would be better off at their city home, presumably a theatre, where they can be at the heart of things and make better money than having to hit the road. Rosencrantz's reply is very interesting. I think their inhibition comes by the means of the late innovation. The troupe has been forced to hit the road because of the recent innovation, and it's almost in large air quotes. There's a variety of options for this. Some have suggested that it's a nod to the Essex Rebellion of 1601, which, put, which puts a definite date on the play, if you're going with this theory, uh, in which Robert Devereux went against the Queen in an elaborate but unsuccessful plot. He even enlisted the Lord Chamberlain's men, Shakespeare's company, to stage a performance of Richard II, including a scene of deposition, which would have been very provocative indeed. Alternatively, it could be that things are a little rough in Denmark ever since the death of the previous king, the innovation being the fact that there is a new king now with a new wife. Given the number of theatrical references that we've already had throughout this scene, I think there's also room for this innovation to be a reference to the growing popularity in London for companies of child actors. There's something very pleasing to me about the idea of having Rosencrantz and Guildenstern explain to Richard Burbage, the great actor of the day who would have been playing Hamlet, that Hamlet's favourite theatre company have been forced to hit the road because everybody is flocking to see a more fashionable company of youngsters. Innovation remains one of the most powerful and hotly contested properties in theatre to this very day. No wonder Shakespeare has it show up. For more discussion of the travelling players and Hamlet's theatrical taste, be sure to tune in to the next episode. If you haven't already, you can check out the recent special episode devoted to Richard Burbage himself. It's on the bonus page of the website at thehamletpodcast.com. Thanks a million for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.